You're listening to Pudnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about how to fix the healthcare system. The big question, right? But first up, let's talk about the challenges companies face in trying to provide healthcare coverage for their workers. The United States doesn't have universal healthcare like most industrialized countries. Most of us get health benefits through employers. Why? A little history. In World War II, the government slapped wage controls on corporations. To lure workers, companies began offering health care benefits. When the war ended, President Truman wanted to create a national health care system, but backed down because of resistance from, among others, the American Medical Association. Doctors were concerned that they would lose autonomy to the government. Fierce healthcare writer Frank Diamond talked with Elizabeth Mitchell, the president and CEO of the Purchaser Business Group on Health. It's a nonprofit group of employers purchasing healthcare services for over 21 million Americans. Here is Frank and Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining us here today. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, let's go back in time, not way back. We're going back to 2021. Kaiser Family Foundation found that some 90% of large employers think that healthcare costs will become unsustainable within 10 years. You were quoted in a Kaiser press release at the time as saying that large employers have, now quote, reached their limit. They're tired of pouring tons of money into a broken healthcare market that delivers uneven quality at bloated cost. Now, could things get so bad that employers might just throw up their hands and say, enough, we're not going to provide health coverage to employer employees anymore? I don't see that happening anytime soon. However, uh, people have been predicting that uh, employers had will have reached their limit for quite some time, uh, decades, actually. I do believe there is a certain um, context that we are in now that is fundamentally different. First of all, COVID exposed just total failures of our system, uh, inequities being probably worst among them. It showed the vulnerability of primary care in a fee-for-service system. It really exposed, I call them the pre-existing conditions of the system. I mean, we knew that things weren't working, but this really made it starkly clear for the people who are paying for care. It also contributed to significant burnout and stress of clinicians. And I think we're going to see more and more strain from um, frankly, the system that has not supported clinicians to do why they do what they go into medicine to do. What is really likely to make the difference right now is that we are going into a recession or at least a period of um, constrained growth that the healthcare system or none of us have really experienced for you know, 10, 12 years. And we have built up this, I will quote myself, bloated healthcare system that is wasting, you know, billions of dollars a year, and the tolerance for that is going down. Employers want to provide health benefits to attract and retain employees. I don't see that changing, but they are going to demand changes to make sure that what they're paying for is high value. I don't see where employers would have 
anything really to just basically step back and look at what's going on or, or will they have some kind of say in how our healthcare system functions from here on out post-COVID? Well, remember that self-insured employers are the ones who pay for healthcare. It's not health plans. Health plans are just pass-throughs. So other than self-insured employers, government, and families, you know, no one else is paying for this. Self-insured employers have a vested interest in creating a higher functioning, uh, higher quality healthcare system because, you know, my members alone spend about $350 billion a year. As their level of frustration has risen and how, as, as, market forces change and they have cost pressures and labor pressures, they are taking a different approach that are built around sort of shared priorities. They are doing direct contracting, meaning they are finding, let's say, a, an ACO or a health system partner and saying, you know, we really care about equity, mental health access, you know, preventive care, maternal health and maternal mental health. We want to have an arrangement with you where we can guarantee that those needs are being addressed and we will pay you fairly for that. And what we find that happens is providers, the the clinicians typically want the same thing. A lot gets lost in translation when there's a health plan in the middle or when there's a third party, a broker, a consultant who I don't believe that they are always um, effectively representing employer interests. That's the type of intervention some of these employers are having in the healthcare system, direct arrangements, identifying top quality providers, um, and just forming new kinds of partnerships because it does matter. They want their employees to have access to the best, you know, most equitable and frankly, fairly priced care. Right. Um, PBGH uh, recently created a committee called Public Purchaser Advisory Committee. Mm-hmm. I know you know all about. It's going to address the unique goals of public public purchasers, goals such as, uh, as the press release put it, elevating the needs of public members and integrating the work of public and private members. So what does that mean exactly? PBGH is a purchaser-only organization, and that's atypical. Most employer membership groups include health plans, you know, PBMs, pharma, and others. And that's that's great. There are lots of multi-stakeholder coalitions and, and initiatives. We, however, are purchaser only. We are focused on the needs of both public and private purchasers. And we have large private employers like Microsoft, Salesforce, and Boeing. But we also include public purchasers like CalPERS on behalf of California state employees, and Washington Healthcare Authority, and, you know, Covered California. So in in large part, their priorities align exceedingly well. They want to improve quality, reduce waste and inefficiency, improve equity. So they're working towards the same goals in the system, but they have different constraints. Um, So as an example, most of our private employers have employees all over the country and designing programs, you know, for one market isn't enough. They need to really be thinking, how can they implement something nationally? Whereas the public purchasers are regional. They are in a, typically just, you know, in a state, or sometimes we have counties like city and county of San Francisco. 
So they have a bit of a different community focus. Um, and public purchasers operate in a different regulatory environment. And sometimes their work is dictated by their state legislature. Mm-hmm. So there are some differences in in sort of the context in which they operate, but they have shared priorities. So what they want to do at PBGH is to align wherever possible to send you know, stronger signals to the market, as an example. One initiative that we led in the last year was to align public purchasers in California, CalPERS, City and County, Cover California, and some of our private members, including eBay, to have the same quality measures so that physicians aren't sort of chasing all these different sort of checkbox requirements. And this, first of all, tells you know, the provider community what matters to employers, like mental health, like access. And it also reduces the administrative burden and the time they waste sort of filling out forms for different health plans. So this was just one example of where our members could come together and try to make it easier for the providers that they want to partner with. But there are multiple opportunities like that to to align across sectors to really drive better care. What regulatory challenges do public purchasers face that private purchasers don't face? It seems to me, as far as I can tell, that they have to face the same regulations. Many of them are the same, but some of them vary by state. As an example, there is a lot of interest in changing payment for primary care to allow more flexibility uh, so that providers can spend more time with patients or um, just, just plan care differently with different care team configurations. But in California, there are some regulatory barriers to changing that payment model that don't exist in other states. They are very wary of um, clinical practices assuming risk, financial risk, which actually is limiting our ability to change payment in a way that providers want. So that is a sort of state-based regulatory issue. Um, It varies across states, but that's just one example. Others, um, you know, there are, are barriers to, let's say, sharing substance use information that would actually be important for providers to know for whole person health. There are different limits on mental health access. So it it, te- it can vary by state, um, but typically they have sort of similar constraints. Uh, the uh, board of directors for public uh, purchasers, sometimes you get sort of legislators, I guess. In the, in exactly. The state, right? And I have to say, as I, as a former legislator, I chaired the health committee <laughs> um, years ago. I can appreciate the challenges of navigating um, sort of legislative priorities because they change frequently and they aren't always as informed as as one might hope. Did you bring that knowledge to your? I guess you did to, this, to your present position. I understand the policymaking process. We have a policy arm. Um, we do a lot of work on federal policy. We were very active um, in limiting surprise billing, as an example, or requiring transparency from hospitals and health plans. It's really sad, in my opinion, that it required federal action to make that happen, that you know you can't even know how much uh, hospital charge is going to be. Um, but we believe that the f- federal policy is moving in a direction that will enable better purchasing by 
um, companies or public purchasers or, or, or families. You mentioned mental health concerns several times uh, in conversation. How much is that on the minds of employers? I would say that mental health and equity are the top two concerns of my members. It, it's an urgent crisis. There is almost no functioning mental health system in the U.S. Um, there are huge constraints on access to needed care. The system is not coordinated. Uh, it's too expensive. It is just really in need of urgent change. Employers are looking to the healthcare system to solve this, but they are also increasingly asking, what can they do? We had some members talking about how could they invest in training more mental health clinicians? What, what, how could they partner to do that? How can they understand, you know, much more holistic health needs? We, we've got to find a way to reduce the disparities and eliminate inequities in our system. I talk, I've talked to some some experts about long COVID, and I've asked them, um, is this, are, are payers and employers concerned about long COVID? And for the most part, they say no. At the moment, they're not concerned because, you know, there's no di- real strict diagnostic guidelines yet, and there's no real treatments yet for long COVID. Is that, has that been your experience talking to employers? That has not been my experience. Um, again, I don't speak for all employers, but I would say that our members are absolutely looking at the data and there is recognition, even though it's not quantified yet, that there will be an impact and that employers are going to have to adjust. Is there a single message or is there a main point that you want to get out there to employers and employees about uh, the possible troubled waters that face us in the economy ahead? Yes, I appreciate the question. Our members are starting to see estimates for what they will be charged in 2023. And there are some significant increases coming. And all of the money that goes to increased healthcare costs, you know, obviously they want to pay for the care that improves the health and well-being of their employees. But there is a lot of that money that does not improve health. And there's a couple of things that we should remember. One, healthcare costs take away from wage growth. They take away from job growth, innovation. They take away from infrastructure and investments and other things that we care about. And the rate of healthcare inflation is it far exceeds uh, any growth in any other sector. It has not had a corresponding sort of there has not been a corresponding increase in quality. So we're paying more, quality is not better, access isn't better, so we're getting less. Value is actually decreasing. So the healthcare industry has had decades to fix that. This is not a new problem or a new assessment. Institute of Medicine has quantified these failings for decades. The industry has not addressed quality concerns or access or equity adequately. And now we're going to be facing a recession. And so we've got these growing cost pressures and growing need for accountability for the system. So our members, all self-insured employers, 
actually, are operating in a new regulatory environment because there was a federal there was federal legislation passed in 2021, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, that actually makes self-insured employers fiduciaries for the healthcare services they purchase, which means they are now accountable for ensuring that the services are high value, fairly priced, high quality. That is a role that they you know, are prepared to take on effectively, but that means all the partners that they rely on, their PBMs, pharma, health plans, consultants, will have to become transparent and accountable. Most of the healthcare system is not ready for that. So there's going to be increased pressure from purchasers to make sure that they are paying for the right things that improve health and well-being. And the industry has not only remained, you know, for the most part, very opaque and unresponsive, but they've also consolidated, making it very hard to get them to change. So I think that we are going into some uh, turbulent times. <laughs> Purchasers, at least the ones that I work with, are, are ready to take a much more active and interventionist role on behalf of the health and well-being of their employees. But there is going to be a lot of change required on the healthcare industry side. And I think it's going to be challenging for many of the incumbents who have not had this pressure before. In, in light of those challenges, uh, I'm always interested in what motivates people to do what they do. Um, those are what you just described in our conversation are huge challenges. So what gets what makes you get up every day and say, well, let's go get it and see what happens? Well, I really believe in the mission of our organization. Um, Healthcare affordability, quality, and equity, those are things that are important and meaningful. And, you know, to be able to commit your life's work to actually making, you know, the healthcare system better on behalf of millions of Americans is is a good good use of time, in my view. What's the thing that you you've seen since you've been on your job that gives you hope? Well, we've had some policy wins that I'm excited about, the transparency, the limits on surprise billing. And more recently, the the law that now allows Medicare to negotiate for drug prices, that's a big deal. I think it will only grow in its importance as they create the mechanisms to actually regulate prices, and that's going to have a, a big benefit. So there's a few policy wins there. But what excites me most really is the leadership of our members to take on this intractable problem to really just say, you know, it's on us. We have to do something to make this better. Millions and millions of Americans really deserve a better healthcare system. Elizabeth Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us here at Podnosis. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Everyone knows the U.S. healthcare system is a broken one, but few have ideas on how to fix it or even where to begin. To better understand what Americans want from their care, one nonprofit spent three years talking to thousands around the country. That nonprofit, United States of Care, then identified policy agenda goals that it has since been working on with lawmakers. Anastasia Glykovskia sat down with the organization's co-founder, Natalie Davis, to find out how that work is going. And here they are. Hello, Natalie. 
Hey there. You have a background, of course, in Washington, working at CMS for nearly a decade. Um, I guess looking back, like, how do you see your work within government when it comes to healthcare and, and versus now outside of it? So much of my career in healthcare is approaching this thing that we call policy, healthcare policy, with a real interest, actually, though, in what it means for the everyday person. And so I came to DC. Um, was actually going to work in museums, uh, but that didn't work out and found myself working in healthcare. Um, and at some point in my career, the Affordable Care Act passed, which was a huge step forward for people getting access to quality, affordable healthcare that they need. And I was asked to join CMS to implement a lot of the Affordable Care Act, namely healthcare.gov and the marketplace. And there I realized I loved sitting near all these really smart policy folks. But what interested me was what does this policy mean for people outside in the real world? Mm -hmm. How does this work for doctors? How does this work for the healthcare system? And can we bring back that information and make responsive policy? And so years later, we were in the summer of repeal and replace. There were a lot of politicians around the country who were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, and at that time, if you remember, we looked across the country and saw people standing up for the Medicaid program, people standing up for this expanded coverage that they got through the Affordable Care Act. Right. And at times in the town halls, you would not even know if it was a what the political stripes of that person talking about. They just were talking about healthcare. And so we started an organization, United States of Care, to find common ground among people to really understand where does the general public line up on the healthcare changes and how can we use that as an agenda? Think we can drive meaningful change in a different way. You talk to lawmakers and you work with them the way that a lobbyist group does, but your organization also specifically works with grassroots organizers on the ground, right, to help push your agenda. Can you talk about why that might be a more effective approach um, versus like a traditional lobbyist group? Sure. Yeah. So we've, over three years, built this agenda for change. We call it United Solutions for Care. And it really is the culmination of talking to people across the country and finding out the 12 areas that across demographics people want us to make a change on. And we take that. It's our North Star. We call on this for all policymakers and the healthcare system to also use as their North Star to make the healthcare system better, make it more affordable, coverage more dependable, care more personalized and the healthcare system easier to navigate. We believe as an organization that with this agenda in hand, we can go out and find these advocates who are already working in the states and come and say, how can we help you? That's where we feel like we can do our biggest change is by finding out where change is already happening and being there to really support and bolster that and really lift up those examples and bring those to other states and the federal government I think that's a good jumping off point for us to talk briefly about the sort of like community specific listening that United States of Care does. Um, you know, I know for a couple of years you've been out in the trenches, like you said, uh, listening to communities and uh, understanding their specific needs. I think I saw on your website, you have a breakdown of the types of research that you've done. And one of them was around, well, I think several of them actually were around specific communities, like um, you know, very niche, uh, marginalized populations. Uh, can you talk about like the benefit of going really specific into a community versus, uh, you know, trying to apply policy more in, in broad strokes? 
a research methodology is something I totally love to nerd out on. Um, so to start out with, we had this belief that we've proved that people agree on more than they than we would think through the political rhetoric that people believe agree on more about what we need from our healthcare system. Um, we started out with more ethnographic or listening research where I was at a kitchen table in San Diego. I was on the streets in Philly. It moved to Zoom over um, the pandemic. Um, and we're back in person now meeting with people. But really, we asked five questions and we started listening for themes. But we also know that our healthcare system and does not work for all people, I believe, but also very much so for certain populations. The research told us the people who the healthcare system has historically not worked for are people of color, mm -hmm. people with low incomes, people in rural America. And these are the ones that, again, we listen loudly to. We try to paint this picture of commonalities across all demographics with a real focus on, on those that are left behind from our healthcare system. That way, we know the solutions that we're pushing for, you know, making healthcare more affordable, coverage more dependable, care more personalized, and a healthcare system that's understandable. If we make sure we're listening and centering those communities who are left behind, we'll know that that'll help everybody. When it comes to identifying your policy agenda, you've said that these issues are nonpartisan, right? These are issues that everybody cares about, being able to afford healthcare and um, being able to have dependable insurance coverage. But I wanted to ask, in terms of working with state and federal governments, these policies are not necessarily nonpartisan within government. We know that for years, there has been a lot of controversy around some of these issues, for example, like expanding the Affordable Care Act, which would expand eligibility for public programs. That is something that blue states have uh, expanded and something that red states are actually, um, they prefer to impose stricter conditions on Medicaid eligibility and, and things like that. So I'm wondering how you respond to pushback, like when you encounter it working with, with states. So the good news is, is that the United Solutions for Care, these 12 solution areas, have already seen real progress. Lowering prescription costs is the number one issue among all demographics that we spoke to. Just months ago, we now have Medicare now has the ability to negotiate drug prices for the first time in history. Mm -hmm. This is a huge deal, and we are seeing progress there. We are working in states where we are working on another solution item where we have passed legislation in three states to make sure more people have affordable insurance where they don't get it from their job. Just last night in the midterm elections, we saw South Dakota uh, through a ballot initiative expand Medicaid. So we as an organization believe if we continue to talk about these issues that matter to people, bring the demographic data of this is what matters to this population, this population, you know, with their political identity, without, with race, ethnicity, with income, we'll continue to show that progress is happening. They talk about, you know, how broken the healthcare system is, how expensive it is, and they feel like they're carrying the cost as, you know, as the public, the, the patients are carrying the cost of the healthcare system. When you talk to people alone about their individual experience in the healthcare system, people feel like they're alone in this. They feel, um, despondent, they don't believe anyone has their best interest at heart, um, or that the system is fixable. And so this is why we bring 
the data to the general public. It's why we bring the data to advocates and to policymakers and to the rest of the healthcare system and say, well, look at these 12 areas. People want this change. How do you approach politicians that are not willing to set political, like the, the rhetoric aside, or that are not necessarily representing the interests of all constituents, for example, what's best for us, you know, a subset, like a marginalized population um, is not something that the policymaker is just willing to do. Or for example, in a red state, that's just not willing to expand eligibility for, for Medicaid or Medicare. How do you approach something like that? Yeah, I mean, United States of Care is certainly just among a lot of groups that are making sure that all states are thinking about the needs of um, the general public and of certain communities. You know, one of the things that we we pride ourselves on is when we talk to politicians from all sides of, you know, all sides is bringing uh, research to say, here's what people want. This is United States of Care's research. We also bring data to say, here's where you know, disparities are occurring. Here's mm-hmm. where, you know, the healthcare system is falling down. Here's how much the healthcare system costs in your state and what that means for, you know, the institutions as well as the individuals. And I think when we can bring that sort of information to policymakers, you know, sometimes they think about an issue differently. Sometimes they don't, and you're not going to get everybody, but the ones that want to be there, that really want to be a part of the mandate that they're constituents sent them into, really appreciate having this research, the data, and the way to talk about it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. As a reporter, I can appreciate that desire for um, research and data. So I think that's a good that's a good approach. Um, you mentioned South Dakota. Uh, you know, we had the midterm elections. Just wondering, how do you think about the work that United States of Care is doing I know leading up to the midterm elections, there had been a lot of reporting about, you know, what the outcome might be and how it might affect, for example, drug pricing legislation. Like, I think that's one thing that was uh, pretty clear that's going to depend on, you know, who's in control where. Um, But can you talk about how you're thinking about your policy items right now in this moment? The great thing about our agenda, United Solutions for Care, is that it is it is the agenda that people have put forward, regardless of who's in power. It's lowering prescription costs. It's making sure people can get affordable insurance. It's expanding Medicare and Medicaid or other um, public programs. It's providing support to caregivers, improving mental health, providing better maternal and newborn care, making care more convenient, et cetera. The, the, that is what people still want. They wanted it yesterday. They want it today when they they woke up. Um, the reality of how you get progress done, I think, is the basis of your question. And we still see room for a lot of progress, whether that's at the state level or the federal level. Um, you know, the the champions may change, the tactics may change. But when it comes down to it, you know, we also saw a lot of people of all political parties vote on some of these issues, making sure that people have access to personalized health care, especially if you're a woman and you're making a choice. Um, if you uh, want, you know, we saw voters come out and say, yes, in South Dakota, we want Medicaid expansion. Um, and so, you know, we, we saw and we'll continue to see, I think, voters standing up for the issues in regards to health care. Um, and we're going to continue to work with the champions that are that are in seat and ones that are moving into seat to make sure we can have progress. You know, we still see 
especially at the federal level, we still see a real path for bipartisan support of some of the things that came, innovations that came out of the pandemic, such as uh, virtual care and the ability for people to just have this now be a part of our healthcare system. Um, And we think when those flexibilities go away, with the unwinding of the public health emergency, Congress has a real need to act, and and we see that will happen. And so there there will be some places that you know won't be possible to act on in certain states or in Congress, but um, we still see a lot of paths forward to make sure people have access to quality, affordable health care. Great. Well, that's very uplifting to hear you say that. I do hope that we continue moving toward progress and. Um, you know, hope that your advocacy efforts help lead the way. So thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we'll be talking about drug pricing reform, affordable generics, and the push toward virtual first health plans. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. Beat.